Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hey fans, got a pretty cool announcement for you. The Athletic College Football is going to be live in New Orleans for the College Football Playoff National Championship. Join us Saturday, January 11th at the House of Blues, New Orleans for live episodes of The Audible with Bruce and Stu and The Andy Staple Show. Doors open at noon central and the show starts at 1. Both shows will feature interviews with special guests and Q&A sessions with some of the brightest minds in college football. I can tell you that Bruce and I could not be more excited to do this, and special thanks to The Athletic for putting it all together. For tickets, go to theathletic.com slash houseofblues. They're on sale now. Make sure you get your tickets in advance because we are fully expecting the show to sell out. Presented by Trader Joe's, I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We're going to be talking about Tua and his decision to leave for the NFL. It was announced Monday morning. We're going to, we have some great mailbag questions, a little bit of uh, 90s nostalgia in there. Uh, but Bruce, first, Trader Joe's, we mention them every week. They're our presenting sponsor. We love Trader Joe's. I just wanted to say... Bruce, I was at my local Trader Joe's on Saturday night, brought our daughter Madeline. She's almost four now. She loves going to Trader Joe's. And on this particular night, she figured out that the orange juice containers, so my wife has an elliptical machine in her house that she uses. Madeline has watched that. She figured out that if you put one hand on one orange uh, orange juice container, one on the other, you can move them back and forth like an elliptical. I'm sure the Trader Joe's employees were thrilled that my daughter was putting her hands all over their orange uh, juice containers. But the point is, if you've got young kids and you need to go shopping, Trader Joe's, very fun experience for them. Uh, so we are recording this, I don't know, about an hour after uh, Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Nick Saban uh, held their press conference. It seems like for about, from, the, from between the Citrus Bowl and Sunday, there was all this optimism around the program that he was actually going to come back. And then on Monday, it was like, oh, right, he's not going to put off the NFL. He announces he's going. I guess we're not surprised by that, but um, what do you think about the news? Not surprised. I think it did throw people a little bit because they're like, well, Nick Saban's going to be there. And when USC did these with with uh, Matt Barkley and and – Lane Kiffin and there was always a kind of like an element of like hey we're going to get the media there we're going to use momentum to build off it this was a little bit of a different situation I will tell you this though uh, right when it was going on in the middle of his as he puts a statement out um, I got a text from an NFL source thank God exclamation point this is the right decision if he came back to Alabama it was going to be a devaluation period already have all the tape on him you need and this person also pointed out 
that next year Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields will be up in the 2021 draft, or at least likely will as underclassmen. Uh, you know, he ran, he ran the risk of, of more injury, but it was like that situation where like, you know what, he's probably going to be a, a mid-round, mid, probably won't go later than the mid-first round anyway. So I don't think it's a surprise at all. Were you surprised? I Only in the fact that I was more surprised that there was legit buzz that he, from from the people broadcasting the game, from our own Aaron Suttles, that, that people were optimistic he would come back. He said it was a difficult decision. But then the way he talked, to he, by the way, it was a, a fantastic speech he gave thanking pretty much everybody around the program. Uh, the way he talked about it, you could tell. He, he knew the deal. He knew all the business elements that go into it. Obviously, the, the, the thing that will dominate the conversation over the next four months is his health, his recovery from his hip injury. He fully admitted that they don't know yet, the doctors don't know yet, you know, how quickly he'll be able to come back, whether he'll be able to participate in, in a pro day. Uh, or even the start of the season, but I'm, I, I kind of agree with your guy. Like, what more do you need to see? You know, whether whether unless unless you know the doctors get to him and say, "Oh, this is a career-ending injury," and I don't doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. He's one of the most talented quarterbacks we've ever seen in college football. Uh, he actually had a higher efficiency rating this season than even Joe Burrow before he got hurt. Uh, you said mid-first round. I'd be surprised unless I. I'm missing something. I said he wouldn't go go lower than the mid-first round. Yeah, I, I don't see why he would go lo- Unless the Miami Dolphins are not a smart franchise, why why would they pass on him? I think they have the fifth uh, pick. I mean, we're assuming Burrow goes number one. There's not – I mean, there's a pretty big drop-off after that. Are you really going to – if you need a quarterback, are you really going to take Justin Herbert or uh, whoever else instead of Tua? Probably not. Hey, I mean, you mentioned it – if you're an NFL team and you grew up as a diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan, um, who would you take? That's a great question. Uh, first of all, my days of being a diehard Cincinnati Bengals fan ended about 20 years ago. Sad news uh, last week, by the way. I mean, when I the, the when I was 13 years old and a huge fan of the Bengals, Sam Weish was their coach. Memorable, memorable runs. He passed away last week. Um, I gotta say, I think I would take Tua. Is that crazy? I just, I my only hesitation about Joe Burrow is that it's been one season. It's been one amazing off the chart season, but it, it, but it is one season, and we've seen sometimes where people get sucked into that, and then uh, the guy doesn't deliver. Uh, Tua did this for two, two have and a half we seasons. Seen, where, I mean, have we seen that where it's been one one amazing season and the guy didn't deliver? Well, the Bengals have one great example in their history, Achilles Smith. He he went for... <laughs> I think that's a that's a little bit of a stretch to compare Achilles Smith's great year to... to I'll give you, to I'll give you another uh, recent one. You didn't give me one yet, Stu. You, you didn't give me Mitch one. Trubisky. One year wonder. These um, aren't amazing seasons, Stu. No, none. I mean, Joe Burrow's having the best. We've talked about this—the best season in the history of any college quarterback in history. Uh, he's probably more likely to be of the Cam Newton one season, uh, uh, you know, future than than those other guys. What's your answer? My answer is I would take Joe Burrow. And again, after just seeing how he's operated in this system, to me, he's the biggest difference. Um, 
I would definitely say him. By the way, just to clarify here on your one great season, on your one great season on Achilles Smith, he completed 58% of his passes. Yeah, it was a different era. You know, pe- people weren't completing 76% it of their wasn't, passes. It wasn't in the 50s, Stu. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> he shouldn't have been drafted that high in the first place, whereas nobody's going to say... He shouldn't have been mentioned on this podcast. Whereas nobody's going to say Joe Burrow got drafted too high he if he, he's drafted the number one pick. But I appreciate your nostalgic... You said you were going to get nostalgic for the 90s. There, there you go. go. I just feel bad for Joe Burrow because I have a, fe- a bad feeling the Bengals are going to ruin his career because as they do almost everybody that comes through that franchise. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, the medical thing is a huge question, and I, and I don't really know how to go about that. Maybe if you were picking – if you truly were picking between the two, I'm guessing that would be a pretty easy reason to discount Tua. But, I mean, from the day he came in, and it was almost two years ago to the day – against uh, against uh, Georgia in halftime of the national championship game and led them to victory and threw that remarkable touchdown pass he's just it's it's been it's been it's been one highlight after another um, I think the only like quote unquote bad game he had and it, it, I guess I shouldn't put it in quotes it was a bad game was against Clemson in last year's national title game the two interceptions the pick six but that was very uncharacteristic. We, we usually saw him playing at a very high level, even when he was injured, uh, obviously, um, in the LSU game this year. So uh, we wish him luck. He was, without question, one of my favorite uh, college football players ever to watch. And I definitely think we talked about this at the time of his injury. He'll be one of those guys 10, 15 years from now, you'll look back and go, how did he never win the Heisman? Is that the way you look at at? At Deshaun Watson. I mean, he was remarkable again over the weekend in the NFL. Yeah. So the thing with Deshaun Watson is he just kind of got caught in, uh, you know, he lost out to Lamar Jackson. <laughs> I mean, if Lamar Jackson hadn't won the Heisman, you'd say the same exact thing about him, right? We should. Yeah. I think the difference is, I think the difference is um, our kind of your last taste of somebody. And with Deshaun, it was a little like Vince Young, where it was after the Heisman and then he goes on and finishes off the year in spectacular fashion and leads his team to a national title and that was different whereas Lamar obviously didn't have that opportunity he had less talent around him but but yeah I mean I, that's kind of where I think I mean look there's been a lot of great quarterbacks who I think will fit into the category of Tua that were great and they just didn't win the Heisman I feel like Deshaun Watson was a little bit um you know, I mean, maybe we should do. We should have done this since it's the end of the decade, and you know, just ended. But who we thought were like the best players we covered in the last ten years, and I'm guessing Deshaun Watson. And it probably doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, I think me selfishly a little bit. I don't know if selfishly is the right word, but um, hard to separate just seeing what he's done in the NFL and how he's done it, and making it. You know, kind of think that way too. You know, my. Um this guy should have won the Heisman has always been Christian McCaffrey. And I just saw last week he was named, he was named all pro at two different positions. He has definitely backed up my case. By the way, who did he lose the Heisman to? He lost the Heisman to Derrick Henry, who also was, uh, who was the star of NFL. Yeah. Wildcard weekend. So I'm not saying that, uh, that that wasn't as much of a no brainer as some others in Heisman history. But uh, I mean, he broke Barry Sanders, all-purpose record that season he should have won the Heisman and it's not even a question to me since you're talking not to hijack the the podcast a little more than I'm probably going to but since we're talking about Tua Joe Joe Burrow and and draft prospects 
Who is the guy you say, man, I did not see this coming and I can't believe, and in the last decade, I don't want it to be like a guy, because I know who I think you're going to say if I opened it up beyond 2010, but who's the guy in the last decade you're like, man, I would have thought he was going to be a lot better NFL player and he turned out to be a complete dud? Trent Richardson. Trent Richardson was a wow. That's exactly who I was thinking An absolute stud running back who at the time everybody was like, I mean, Mark Ingram won the Heisman. He was a first-round pick, and everybody was like, but Trent Richardson's better. And, uh, yes, I would not have seen him flaming out as quickly as he did. I <clears throat> I watched quite a bit of the, the Bills-Texans game. Now, Josh Allen's game was kind of a microcosm of, of what frustrated us about him as a college player as well. But it does seem like right now – I mean, I went to the mat in terms of if you do this, if you make this guy a first-round pick every – piece of of every precedent every stat of his from college indicates he's going to be a huge bust me hasn't he's not he's not lamar jackson but he's it seems like to this point he is he's been a very he's been a very yeah very very encouraging encouraging start start. i think i told you this not to this degree but like our my fox crew we did an nfl game last year it was a bills lions game and you know you're around him you're around the coaches and you knew what he was working with last year and I remember saying, like, they really like him. And they think, you know, very optimistically what's happening. And obviously he had a breakout 2019. And I'm with you because I, I remember looking at Wisconsin, the, the, Wisconsin, sorry, Wyoming, in the, in the games that he played against FBS opponents, they were really bad. And, you know, check one off to the NFL scouts. They got that one right. So, so be it. You're ready to conclude? You're ready to definitively say that? Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think you know, you and I were both wrong on that one. He's turned out to be a very good NFL quarterback so far in the first two years. I mean, he got the Bills to the playoffs? Who saw that coming? I mean, last year, you know, his best weapon by the last month of the season was Robert Foster, who was a free agent. And he made plays with his legs. And, um, you know, credit to the Bills. They were smarter than you and I on that one. Okay, I will give credit to the Bills. By the way, our own producer, John Hayes, is adding to the podcast conversation in real time, but he's doing it on Twitter. He says, Tua is nowhere near the top of my list of great players I always remember watching. Why? Because he was too good, and that made almost every game he played pretty boring and almost unwatchable for the neutral fan. I hear you, John. A lot of those games were over in the first quarter, but they were fun to watch. I mean, it was fun to watch him. It was fun to watch him uh, like the... I feel like those RPO slant passes to Judy or one of the other guys were just undefendable against most of the SEC team. Obviously, it would be different when they would play Clemson, but uh, most of their like week-to-week SEC games, you you couldn't stop that play. Uh, speaking of Alabama, real quick, so there's a lot of juniors that they're kind of keeping it. We're kind of keeping an eye on their decisions because um, there's been also buzz that a lot of them will come back. Um, Jerry Judy's gone. But uh, Brady, uh, Dylan Moses has already said he's coming back. Um, Alex Leatherwood, their tackle, has already said he's coming back. And just while we've been recording this, I see the news that Devontae Smith is coming back. So um, they might end up hitting a pretty high percentage there. I assume Najee Harris will turn pro. But decent number. Yeah, and Xavier McKinney's gone. Uh, Jedrick Willis is also gone. I mean, so there. So it didn't end up being quite that many. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, that's three big ticket items they have lost: a terrific offensive tackle, 
maybe a first round safety and obviously Tua is the biggest name on that bunch so so by the way I know that uh you've probably at this point lost track but the national championship game is a week from Monday uh this is the longest gap between the semis and the championship that that we're ever going to have in this this contract it is 16 days and it feels even longer but uh we're getting to New Orleans later this week and I thought the the stories you and Andy Staples did on our site today which I'm sure took a ton of work calling a bunch of coaches to get their anonymous scouting reports on these two teams were pretty interesting um you know all this time I keep saying like as great as Brent Venables is I just I don't see how they're going to slow down LSU's offense any more so than the teams that hopefully more so than Oklahoma for their sake but you know, they don't have that that dominant defensive line that they've had in years past. But as I read uh, your LSU scouting report, I thought to myself, I don't know if they're going to be able to slow down Clemson. It's not, it's kind of the same thing. Like, they don't have a dominant defensive line. They've struggled at times this season. And, you know, Clemson has every piece you could want on offense. Yeah, so from talking to the coaches I talked to on that side of it, um, the question is, the, the guy you hear that a lot of people speak really highly of is number 18, Caleb on Chason. They said he is, a, he is a difference maker in the front seven. The other guys are guys who are physical and hold the point, but they're just not guys who are make a ton of negative plays and get a lot of pressure. By the way, there's one bonus for LSU. Uh, Michael Divinity, who has sat out the last six games, um, he has been cleared for this game, and he is going to play. He's one of their better pass rushers. You will see him on third downs. Uh, he he was out from the time before the Alabama game, so that will, you know, he's not mentioned in there because honestly, a lot of the guys I talked to, it didn't come up. the The things that were interesting to hear from was uh, just about the secondary and what can be exploited and. and you know, some of the guys thought that, okay, yeah, there's, I talked to one coach who said, you know what, we talked to some other coaches who faced them and said, don't even mess with trying to throw outside because there are guys, Derek Stingley, the terrific freshman, and Christian Fulton, who's a senior, those guys are really good. Don't even mess with it, but you can do damage if you can exploit Grant Delpit in coverage and Jacoby Stevens in coverage and get some of those matchups. Now, I talked to another coach who was like, you know what? I think you can you can take advantage of some certain things. And if people read this story in Athletic, they'll see where they thought uh, not only Christian Fulton was vulnerable, but some of the things that Derek Stingley's vulnerable for, too. And that Clemson has the kind of personnel to take advantage of it. So I, I think from reading between the lines on that, there is a lot of stuff that, you know, no surprise – is stretching towards what could be like a 40-42-39 kind of game on Monday night in in uh, the Superdome. Yeah, I think it could be a lot like the LSU-Alabama game. I mean, you're just going to have two, most likely the next two number one picks in the draft are the two quarterbacks. It's There's going to be a lot of points scored. Uh, do you think this, this was brought up, I believe, in yours, keeping track between yours and Andy's, do you think if Ohio State had won – if Ohio State had beaten Clemson, would Ohio State actually be a tougher matchup for LSU in that they do have Chase Young and a lot of great guys up front uh, that could potentially pressure Joe Burrow in a way that he doesn't usually get pressured? 
I do think LSU's offense would have had a harder time with Ohio State's defense, not just because of the Chase Young, but but that is a big piece of it. But also, uh, from from talking to some coaches, one of the things that said is, okay, you have Isaiah Simmons, who's a dynamic big athlete. Maybe he can take away Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who does all kinds of damage to opponents because he's so versatile. And now you have one linebacker who might be able to stay with him. And that's a problem for you. And then they have A.J. Terrell's a really good cornerback. Maybe you can single him on Jamar Chase. Where LSU does so much damage is it's pick your poison with them. I mean, we saw Justin Jefferson went wild against uh, Oklahoma. Now, granted, Oklahoma wasn't very good in the secondary to begin with. And they were also missing their best pass rusher, Ronnie Perkins. So they were really shorthanded and, and probably the worst possible matchup. For that team, um, but the question is, how good is Clemson on the other? You know, with some of those other pieces in in the back of their, you know, they have some stiff guys who don't run great. Um, you know, at least that's from talking to some coaches who know Clemson's personnel a little bit. And so, I, I think everything's pointing towards this being what looks like an arena football game um, in there, and. It should be fun. It'll be a lot different than the last time LSU played a national title game in that building. That's correct. That was the twenty-one uh, nothing Alabama win, which is always is one of the most deceiving scores in history because it was twenty-one nothing with five field goals uh, from Alabama. Um, the only other thing I was going to say is, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Ohio State's defense would have would have caused more problems for LSU. I do think one difference, if on the other side of it, is. You know, Ohio State, had, Justin Fields is great. J.K. Dobbins is great. But I feel like Chris Olave was their only superstar receiver. Like, they have good receivers beyond him, good dependable receivers, but Olave was the only one that you had to worry about just taking over the game. Clemson has T. Higgins, Justin Ross, and Amari Rodgers. And um, those LSU, you mentioned it, right? Like, Derek Stingley has moments where he looks like uh, the future, whatever you want to say, all-American all corner, and he has moments where he's struggled, and certainly that's been true of Christian Fulton as well. So, um, Two things I want to do. First, I have uh, since we talked about Joe Burrow a little bit, there was a quote I got from one of the coaches, and I think it is, and it's gotten a little bit of play I've seen from some Cincinnati Bengal fans just from looking at my Twitter feed. Uh, and I don't want to give away the store if you haven't subscribed for the store yet, but asked to explain what makes Burrow so special. One SEC head coach rattled off a bunch of things in one sentence that probably also sums up why so many NFL scouts think he'll be the first pick in the draft. It's his confidence, how accurate he is, how quickly he makes decisions, his off-platform throws outside the pocket, the way he extends plays with his feet and improvises and keeps his eyes downfield, and how quickly he gets things out of his hands that is unique. Uh, one of the other coaches had said, you know what, there's things we felt like we did exactly right against them. And basically what you'd look back and say, okay, this is exactly what we want to do to kind of deal with them. And said, you know what, the problem with this is you do all that and it's like we stopped the play and it still turned into a plus 30 because Joe just did something. And just, you know, and that's, I think, the uh, the essence of, of really what has made him such a revelation this year. Uh, the one thing I was going to ask you is, I, you, you mentioned J.K. Dobbins in Ohio State, and obviously he had a fantastic career. Do you think, because this is my my read on it, is that 
Travis Etienne is even more dangerous than J.K. Dobbins. You think I'm wrong at that, or do you do you get that feeling too? Oh, for sure. Jake uh, Travis Etienne is one of the most underappreciated running backs I can remember. And J.K. Dobbins is an All-American caliber player. Yeah, I mean J.K. Dobbins. He ran for two thousand yards this season. He's the he ran for more yards than Eddie George did the the year he won the Heisman for Ohio State. He broke the Ohio State single season uh, rushing record. When you're in the Big Ten and playing the teams that. J.K. Dobbins face, you probably played at least better statistically ranked defenses than what certainly Travis Etienne and Clemson have faced. Sure. And, and look, I mean, in the Ohio State game, they did a pretty nice job of shutting him down as a runner. Then he ends up, but then they end up throwing the ball to him, especially, including on what ended up being the game winning touchdown. What amazes me about him is uh, the yards per carry. This is a guy who, in his the past two seasons as their number one running back has averaged 8.1 yards per carry last year and eight yards per carry this season. Compare that to, you know, your, your typical star running back who it's really impressive if they average over six yards a carry, right? So you've got, uh, this year, Chuba Hubbard leading rusher, 6.38, uh, JK Dobbins, 6.65, Jonathan Taylor, 6.26, you know, they're all kind of around that range. And then Travis Etienne sitting there averaging eight yards a carry. So he's the ultimate home run hitter. There's a lot of those guys in this game. There's a lot of guys in, the, in this game that can take it to the house at any given time. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And now, Stu, let's get back to the mailbag, which we I feel like we haven't done enough of in recent episodes. But uh, here we go. And this is a familiar name. And now we're going to say it right. It is from Johnny Shea. I believe you butchered his name a lot over the last year, Stu. Um Hey guys, I've been searching for a question worthy of your response. When LSU beat OU, some people said that they were maybe the fifth best team they played all year. People never bring up how they beat Texas by only seven points, and due to the stubbornness of our now departed defensive coordinator, I think he's referring to Todd Orlando, uh, is it because it was only the second game of the season? I was at that game, and many of the star defensive players were faking cramps to slow down the Texas offense, which was playing as fast as the LSU offense. Stu, you were at that game, I guess it was three months ago now. What do you say to Johnny? Yeah, I was, and, and it was 100 degrees that day. So I know that everybody was convinced that every single one of those guys was faking injuries, but I think it's probably... Um, realistic that at least some of them were truly cramping up um, and that certainly contributed to Texas uh, piling up points and yards there in the second half it's so hard to um, I mean teams get better teams get worse over the course of a season we saw Texas probably at about its best at least until the ball game in that game and we saw an LSU team that uh, that was a an eye-opening game for sure to see what Joe Burrow and his receivers did given that, I mean, it seems like a long time ago now, but that we weren't 100% confident that this actually would be a, an improved LSU offense. But they got even better uh, as the season went along. And I think their defense, that was certainly not the last time their defense struggled, but the defense got a lot better later in the season. So, you know, to me, the bigger mystery isn't, you know, the, the question is what happened to Texas after that game. We certainly saw a version of Texas, and in particular, we saw Sam Ellinger play really well in that game. The offense played really well in that game. And then they just never, you know, lived up to that again. So I'm not so puzzled about LSU coming out of that game. They just, it was early in the season. I'm puzzled why Texas just 
especially in off, they had a lot of injuries on defense and their defense really struggled in the middle of the season. But why that offense with that quarterback struggled so badly um, uh, pretty much for the last, at least the last half of the season. They played okay in the Red River game. They gave up a lot of sacks. But over the second half of the season, they just got worse and worse and worse until until the Alamo Bowl. Yeah, also, by the, on the fake cramps thing, it's worth noting, like, Glenn Logan was one of Al, uh, LSU's best players. He actually got hurt in that game. He was out for a month. Uh, so that wasn't, you know, I, I think people looked at it as, oh, he's faking it or whatever. Rashard Lawrence, who's probably been their most consistent defensive lineman, he also got banged up in that game. So uh, I think you're right, though. It was the second game of the season. I think that was probably about as well as, as Texas played. And... I think LSU has gotten a lot better in the last month of the season with a lot of guys getting healthy. Uh, you know, in the in the the uh, Ole Miss game, you know, they were playing. Grant Delpit had a high ankle sprain, was nowhere near what he is now, and I think so. Some of those issues were there, and quite honestly, right now, I think their offense is. It was really impressive that night against a very porous Texas defense, and I think it's gotten a lot better so I think what you're saying is true but I think there were some other layers to that that are probably not quite accurate and as far as OU being the fifth best team I remember there's some Georgia folks who took issue with Ed Ogeron at one of the uh one of the Peach Bowl pre-press conferences where somebody asked him who's the best team you played and I think he rattled off three other teams before he said Georgia and obviously it being in the state of Georgia I think that kind of caught the attention of a lot of people but I think some of that is well what did you see look they beat Georgia by 30 points they beat Georgia last year by 20 it's not like they don't it's not like Georgia's not a good team but I think it's like who was the hardest for you I think Auburn was a problem for them obviously Alabama was a problem for them and Florida was a problem for them so or more of a it seemed to be more of a problem so I think sometimes that's that factors into that okay Jeff Stofko and th- thank you everybody's doing the, the phonetic spelling this week and we appreciate it Jeff Stofko from Brazelton Georgia so I have a couple of Oregon focused questions for you guys regarding their future success can Oregon compete for national championships by following the same blueprint as the top SEC teams Oregon has a big decision to make next season regarding a replacement for Marcus Arroyo as offensive coordinator with Justin Herbert graduating, the QB will be unproven next year. Do you have any recommendations on whom Oregon should hire? Is it going to be someone that will fine-tune Mario Cristobal's power running philosophy or someone that will revolutionize the game plan like Joe Brady did at LSU? Uh, Mario Cristobal is a lifelong O-line guy. I think he's going to be fine-tuning the power running philosophy with some other wrinkles to it. I don't think he's going to be going five wide all the time like like what LSU does with Joe Brady. Um you know, there's a few names that I think have gotten on his radar. Will Hall, from who's now the offense coordinator at Tulane, has done a really good job. That is somebody I could see getting some some looks. Uh, I would think. Look, Joe Moorhead is now out there. He's a brilliant offensive mind. The former Penn State offensive coordinator who just got uh, fired at Mississippi State a few days ago. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who have offensive coordinator hires who are going to be seeing if he has any interest. Um, I know Jed Fish was a guy who did a good job at UCLA, who was somebody who had been uh, had been up. I think he went up there to clinic it, before the season or at some point in the offseason. So I think there's some connection there. And then there's some other guys who are out there that I, I think Cristobal is one, as we saw this when he found Andy Avalos. He did a pretty exhaustive search on that. 
to find his defensive coordinator. Um, as far as the Justin Herbert part of this, there are some good grad transfers out there. One of them is Jamie Newman from Wake Forest. Not quite as big as Justin, but also very athletic with a big, strong arm. They also have an interesting connection there. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but there is a GA on the Oregon staff who actually was a teammate and friend of Jamie Newman at Wake Forest. Uh, who knows if that's going to be a if that's an entry point or not, but he's a guy that I think a lot of schools are going to look at. And there's a handful of other guys, I think, that are uh, Anthony Brown from Boston College is a grad transfer. A lot of people are going to look at. I'm sure KJ Costello from Stanford is a guy. You know, the, the latter two guys have had health issues they have to get through. But um, I think if they can get a very good grad transfer quarterback, and it's not to say they don't think a lot of Tyler Shuck, who's the backup, and they have talked about him pretty glowingly in some of our meetings about what they think he can be down the road. I think where they have a chance to be a national title contender, Stu, is they are going to be really big and athletic on defense. You add Panay Sewell's brother, who's a five-star linebacker, who's 6'3", 260, and can run. You add Justin Flo, who a lot of people thought is the best linebacker on the West Coast in years to come in there, to what they already have, especially in the front seven. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty loaded on defense. They got to replace a bunch of guys on the offensive line. Panay is back. He'll be the best offensive lineman in the country, but they have recruited really well up front. I think the question is going to be, can they get enough uh, weapons on the outside? To me, when you look at the teams that were in the playoff this year, obviously LSU, great group of receivers. Clemson, great group of receivers. Oklahoma had CeeDee Lamb and some other good receivers, and Ohio State has a deep receiving core. I think it's if you do not have some difference makers outside – and right now, I know they like Micah Pittman, who was a freshman. He was hurt a lot this year. But I think that's the area. They have Devin Williams, who's sitting, who sat out this year after transfer from USC. He was a big-time recruit. But that's the area where I think it's interesting because they've, they've recruited a lot of good, big, athletic people. It's the receiver part where I think they need to keep upgrading it at. I don't, so we've talked about this many times, the difference between being a playoff contender of which there are a bunch, any national title contender, of which I think there's maybe four or five right now. Um, Oregon, I think, is already in position to be a playoff contender. To be a national championship contender, I think will take a couple more years of him recruiting at a very high level. I don't think, you know, if you had thrown them in against LSU instead of Oklahoma, I'm not sure the results would have been much different. And that's not, you know, it's not a, a, a dig on Oregon. I just think that's, where the sport was this year there was a big drop off after number three um but he is it's a lot different than the chip kelly mark helfrich era oregon which was not necessarily bringing in all the four and five stars but just had such a um ahead of the curve system and then a, a very um you know extremely talented quarterback and marcus Mariota, and that's how they got to the national championship game you know i think if it happens again now under cristobal it'll be more um, as Johnny said, the SEC blueprint, where strong in the trenches, um, get some play, get a good quarterback, get some playmakers around that, and that could be possible. Brian Johannes says, gentlemen, which former 90s powerhouse, Miami, Nebraska, or Tennessee, do you think will win a conference title first? All three have spun their wheels in the 2000s and made recent coaching hires. All three also have formidable uh, current elites in their respective division in their respective divisions. Curious your thoughts. 
What do you think? You going with the alma mater here? Wow. This is a good, but it's a tough question, and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> like, you know, Tennessee. By the way, Jeremy Pruitt, it's a very timely question because Jeremy Pruitt in the locker room after the Gator Bowl said this is going to be the decade of the Vols. Um, of course. What's he going to say? He's trying to recruit to it. I get it. You, I mean, look, they, they had a nice finish to the year. They have the toughest road. They're the, you know, never mind just the SEC to get past Georgia and Florida. And there's still a big gap talent wise between them. I just, I just don't see that. I don't. Um, and then that leaves Nebraska and Miami. Uh, Miami obviously has the better recruiting base to work from, but they've shown no signs of it. And Nebraska's shown little signs of it at this point. Um, I'm going to say Nebraska. I'm going to say Nebraska. Scott Frost did get it done at, at, uh, I was going to say South Florida. What am I doing? Did get it done at UCF. Um, I think he has some good pieces in place. I honestly think he is, this was a rough year. But I think Miami's still in the, it may get worse before it gets better kind of thing where I feel like Nebraska bottomed out and will go. If you're asking me one of those three, I would say Nebraska. I agree. Um, of the three, Miami theoretically has the biggest advantage in terms of ge- geography. And yes, there's one, you know, reigning power in the ACC right now, but it's not like there's obvious um, teams after that. But it's been a mess for 15 years or maybe longer. It's a real mess right now. There was a story just the other day about kind of the, the board and the donors aren't happy with Diaz. But with Nebraska, yeah, everybody wants to dog Scott Frost. He has, hasn't lived up to the hype so far. I think he'll get it going there. And more importantly, uh, if Nebraska gets it going, they can certainly win the Big Ten West then you're just uh, hoping to catch Ohio State on a down year or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. But oh, it's going to be tough for all three. I'll, I'll take Nebraska. Um, all right. So can I read this as you saying, okay, 20, in 2020, Justin Fields is still there, but Justin Fields will leave after 2020. Stu, there is a limb with your name on it. Nebraska in 2021? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Nebraska 2021. Stu and Bruce, is it just me or did the Pac-12 potentially get the best holiday gift of the season when CBS decided to walk away from the SEC package? With at least half the conference teams located directly in major markets, Cal Stanford, UCLA, USC, Washington, and ASU, having prime conference games on network TV, not just in football, but basketball as well, is a dream scenario. Should Larry Scott jump on these negotiations now? Thanks. This is from Andrew. Stu, do you believe what Andrew is trying to sell? That was a story that got a little bit lost in the shuffle over the holidays, but certainly a huge deal for TV and college football uh, that the, the that CBS is going to be out of the SEC package fairly soon. Um, and, and that did lead to that's the next logical question, right? Okay, if suddenly CBS doesn't have a college football package, you would think they're going to want to try to get back into it, whether it's with the, the Pac-12, the Big 12. Obviously, the Big 10 has one coming up soon. Uh, in terms of the Pac-12 specifically, I think that would be very appealing to Larry Scott if 
given given how much consternation there is from his fans about time slots, if you could say there's going to be a Pac-12 game on at 3.30 Eastern every week, um, great. Where I think Andrew is maybe overselling it a little bit is major markets or not, the Pac-12 is just not a great TV uh, ratings draw. It is not even close to what CBS has been getting from the SEC every week. You look any year, you look at the list of the top-rated games, you're going to barely see the Pac-12 on there. Now, I think that would be different if USC was Pete Carroll-era USC, and they were must-see TV, and everybody was watching them. Oregon also does pretty well uh, when they're really good, but they were pretty good this year and and didn't really get big numbers. So uh, that's, I think, a question CBS would have to answer for itself. Is it worth however much you're going to have to spend on that for a package of games that, you know, really only has a couple programs that are that have the potential to get big national audiences, whereas the SEC probably has six of them and the Big Ten has four or five of them. Um, you know, I'm just I'm not sure what the answer there would be. Yeah, it also might be interesting to note, and I'm going to kind of throw this out and maybe dance away from it, but uh, a lot of people know that this CBS deal is not going to wrap up or is not the end date isn't for another like four years because of that. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be some kind of negotiations where that package could be exercised earlier. So it could move on to its new partner, maybe, maybe not next year, but maybe 2021. So does that change kind of the math on some of these things going forward as well? Well, the issue is that the other conferences are locked into their current partners for a few years. I think the next one that comes up is the Big Ten in 2023. And then Pac-12 year after that, Big 12 year after that. So there's definitely going to be a lot of shuffling, I would think, uh, amongst the various networks and amongst the various conferences. The SEC-CBS thing is awkward because if they're going to be a lame duck for four more years, you know, that's just that's just really awkward. However, you know, you said, talked about them getting out of it early. That's certainly possible. But I would think you'd have to I mean, they would have to pay CBS. CB, right now, CBS is, is that's the biggest value in college where they're paying next to nothing for it and making huge gobbles of money on it. They pay what the SEC championship game right now would be worth is more than what they're paying for the entire package every year. So it's just like the biggest bargain in college sports. I wouldn't think you'd want to voluntarily walk away from that. Uh, finally, this one's for you from Roful Jossum. Bruce, I know Kirk Herbstreit does this, but why are you not picking games you are covering? It's never made sense to me when Herbstreit does it either. Are we to believe that if you pick a team to win, and he's talking about the games that you're doing sideline for, that if you pick a team to win, that means you are rooting for them and are now biased? No, actually, I, I, I haven't asked Kirk this specifically, but my rationale on this is this. If I show up at a game and somebody, and this may surprise people, but it's actually happened where um, some coaches that are at the schools, and these are games that you, Stu, and I pick on Thursday, where I've gotten like a, a DM or a text from somebody going, oh, you think we're going to lose again, huh? Or whatever. And it happened this <laughs> this year uh, early in the season to the point where I, I responded back to the, to the coach saying, well, you know, I picked against you the last two times. You guys proved me wrong, so I don't want to jinx you. Ha, ha, ha. Um, but it's just that. You, you know what? You just don't want to walk into a, into the production meetings we have on Friday, which are usually the day after, and somebody's sitting there knowing, oh, you picked us to lose, you know, 38 to 10. 
um, it, it just makes it a little more awkward. Doesn't need to be that way. So that has taken the high road. Now it doesn't mean if you picked against them the week before to get blown out and they didn't or whatnot that 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 uh, isn't still kind of a, an awkward source of of of, uh, of, air, of air to to kind of know if they know it. But you know, it's like look, at least in the short term, we're going to handle it that way. Does that make sense to you, Stu? Yeah, I was. Yeah, that makes total sense. I would think it would be a little awkward to walk into a meeting of people you just picked to lose thirty-eight to ten. Also, as you know, people that watch these games, fans that watch these games, are always convinced that the the broadcast team has it out for them and is in the corner of the other team. So the last thing you need to like give them more fodder is that you picked against them. Because as we all know, when we pick against a team, it's because we hate them, not because we are trying to be smart and get the score right, but in fact, because we hate their team. So, you know, probably don't want to contribute to that as well. And I think in, in fairness to Kirk, Kirk has a, you know, he's, he's, he's the analyst on a game. You hear him way more than you're going to hear me. I mean, there are times I think about like, oh, I've done six hits in this broadcast on this team versus one on the other. And sometimes it's about, you know, just how many times the other team has had a bunch of injuries, so you're giving updates on it. But you know, I'm kind of mindful of how much, how much, uh, how many sideline hits I've had for one team versus the other, because you just don't want another fan base to go, oh, he just likes even, and it never, it's never intended that way. It's just the way the broadcast kind of plays out. All right, so you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Or, Stu, you can come visit us on uh, this weekend at House of Blues and ask them in person. You could ask the questions in person. That's right. Uh, that is coming up this Saturday, January 11th at House of Blues in New Orleans. Doors open at noon. Show starts at 1. We will be doing live editions of both the Audible and the Andy Staples show a lot of our colleagues from The Athletic will be there, like Nicole Auerbach and Grace Rayner, who host our Clemson podcast, Brody Miller, our LSU beat writer, and some other special guests as well. Tickets are just $10. You can get them at theathletic.com slash House of Blues. We'll see you there. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash theaudible that's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic yes.